everyone, this is Matt Zanker standing in for David Sylvan. Over this last or the last few installments of the podcast, we've been rolling out. Should I just go we'll, for it, Patricia? Yep, I'll give you a three, two, one, and then we'll uh, go, but we'll just keep it on the same recording. So after my countdown, you're good. All right, we're live in three, two, one. Hi, everyone. This is Matt Zanker standing in for David Sylvan. As you know, over the installments, we've been rolling out some of the talks from our New Frontiers event that we held in, no in November with our partner, NASA Glenn Research Center. The event, entitled Innovating for Systemness and Well-Being, combined fascinating perspectives from healthcare experts side NASA scientists. I'll now pass the mic over to Dr. Eric Beck to introduce our final keynote. Dr. Beck is the Chief Operating Officer of University virtually, these panels He has more than 20 years of experience so as a leader in healthcare delivery and integrated systems of care. During COVID-19, he oversaw our Incident Command well. Center and so helped us navigate through series, our new challenges using his extensive knowledge of emergency responses, system design and innovation, all the while keeping front and center of well-being for our UH family. Here's Dr. Beck to introduce Dr. J.D. Polk, NASA's Chief Health and Medical Officer. Good afternoon, everyone, and pleased to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. J.D. Polk, Chief Health and Medical Officer for NASA, has native roots uh, here in Ohio, completed his emergency medicine training here in Northeast Ohio, and has gone on to an esteemed career. Personally, it's uh, a pleasure to introduce uh, J.D. Uh, as a 20-year mentor of mine, he's been a uh, a, a wonderful influence uh, to myself and many here in uh, in Northeast Ohio. And with uh, without further ado, we'll uh, we'll have JD uh, begin his uh, keynote address, uh, followed by our fireside chat. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, even virtually in Northeast Ohio. Um, and I really appreciate the uh, invite and. You know, let me uh, go ahead and uh, share my screen, and I think we've got it going here. So, Eric, you know, we've talked before about how exploration and innovation, uh, at least at NASA, uh, is two threads of the same fabric. And, and I think some of the lessons that we've learned through our 60-plus years of spaceflight uh, are also uh, lessons that can be taken to the healthcare industry and probably incorporated at university hospitals as well. Uh, but let's let's go through a little bit of a journey because there's there's the overt lessons uh, of innovation and the covert lessons of innovation, and I'll I'll tell you what I mean by that. So obviously, when we first started in Project Mercury, uh, this was the first time that we put humans in space. The Russians beat us to it uh, with Yuri Gagarin. Uh, but the amount of innovation required uh, to get someone aloft in space, the first time we had ever done it, didn't know what was going to occur physiologically, uh, knew some things about orbital mechanics, but uh, had to test out the thrusters and, and all of the engine components and the engineering, a massive amount of innovation and acceptance of risk that went about uh, in this mission. And then fast forward to the Apollo program. And I, I love this particular slide for, for a couple of reasons. I think this slide shows 
three things, the height of exploration, the height of innovation, and the height of desolation, all in one slide. This is Apollo 15 uh, on the surface of the moon. And that vehicle in the background, that lunar lander that we're all used to seeing, uh, there was a huge amount of innovation that went about getting that vehicle to the moon. And that vehicle sitting there has a computer uh, and a guidance computer in it. And, and if you can think about it, in the 1960s, a computer filled an entire room and somehow they had to get a computer small enough to be a guidance computer on that vehicle, going from the size of a room to where it would fit onto that vehicle and not take up too mass, too much mass power or volume. Um, and you know, we think about things like hydrogen fuel cells today. We we hear those things like they are a a new innovation or a new um, invention for cars and, and uh, planes and, and things now. Actually, that vehicle had hydrogen fuel cells on it. Um, and uh, a lot of that development came about in the Apollo program. And then fast forward to our space shuttle program. This was one of the most sophisticated vehicles we had ever built uh, and a reusable spacecraft and a huge amount of innovation with multiple different NASA centers coming together uh, for a, a singular mission of putting people back into space. Uh, and then, you know, a little bit further, uh, taking that innovation and now trying to build a space station in space with multiple spacewalks, literally putting together modules that had never been made it on the ground, uh, built by different countries, uh, and then putting them together in space to make this International Space Station. And this, this vehicle is the size of a football field, flying at 250 nautical miles above the Earth, 17,500 miles per hour, 26 countries and 20 years and counting. November is our 20th anniversary of a continuous presence on the International Space Station in space. And this is a, a laboratory in space that allows us to do experiments, allows us to do research. But you know, the other thing that it's allowed us to do is learn how to cooperate with 26 countries, uh, many of them speaking different languages with different cultures uh, and amassing those folks into a singular mission and a singular focus uh, towards this innovation. That, that I think is you know, probably the, the unsung portion of this International Space Station. Folks will look at the research, they'll look at the things that we did on board, uh, but that singular focus in bringing 26 countries together on a unified mission, I think is a huge product. And then fast forwarding uh, in the future here, we are right now working on this vehicle, uh, the Space Launch System and the Orion capsule. And the Space Launch System will take us back to the moon for a more sustained presence in the moon for what we call our Gateway and Artemis program. Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. And so we will put the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024, and then have a sustained presence to use the moon as a testing ground for Mars. And that's gonna take a huge amount of innovation, but a different type of innovation than we did in the 60s, because now we're incorporating commercial companies as well as our international partners 
as well as NASA. And so it's, again, taking a larger, even larger than our International Space Station, a broader scope of partners uh, on the commercial front and the international front towards a unified mission again uh, to explore uh, the moon and Mars. Uh, and of course, you move humans further out into the universe, which is a pretty interesting goal in and of itself. And we've learned things along the way with the International Space Station, intracranial hypertension and uh, changes to the eye, which we didn't see in the space shuttle or in Skylab or in the Mercury, Gemini or Apollo programs. It actually took living longer in space and longer duration missions before this entity showed up. And it allowed us to see what happens to the eye uh, on orbit, what, what happens to the optic nerve, what happens to the brain, and to look to see how we can mitigate those uh, particular issues so that the astronauts will be able to work and work effectively on Mars and uh, without any health outcomes. And we've seen things like clots in space, thrombosis in the internal jugular vein. Instead of a deep vein thrombosis in a calf, like we would think of on the ground, without gravity, that blood can stagnate, but stagnates instead up by the head and the thorax. Uh, and so learning how to treat these things in space, essentially doing internal medicine in space uh, and learning the physiology in space has been really important for us. Now, those are the overt lessons and the overt innovations, but there's also some of the covert lessons. There's how to optimize the function of the astronauts, so their muscle, their bone. Uh, we have neurovestibular functions that occur and, and uh, what are called saccades that we see here with the eyeball moving back and forth. Uh, those things occur when the body's in microgravity and it doesn't have all the stimulus that it normally does in 1G. Uh, and so learning how to get those astronauts so that they are functional on another planet after they've been in microgravity. It'll be six months to get to Mars and then Mars and Earth don't line up again for another 18 months and then six months back. So that's a long journey. But there's even more covert lessons on innovation. Uh, this is a space shuttle main engine, a very sophisticated piece of technology and engineering. But if I told you that this was one of the best inventions for end-stage heart failure, you'd probably not believe me. But actually, it is. And Dr. DeBakey, when he was working on the left ventricular assist device, was having problems getting the impeller to work. And an impeller is different than a propeller. An impeller uh, swirls and stacks fluids almost like a, think of it like a slinky. They, they start to stack on top of themselves to push as a column up uh, a pipe or up an artery or up a vein. Uh, and so the, the internal device here, this impeller, uh, wasn't working right. And he was getting clots, he was getting eddies and flows and turbulent flow. Uh, and Dr. DeBakey turned to the space program because he knew that space shuttle, when it is lifting off and lifting off into orbit and all that thrust is moving uh, downward and the vehicle is moving upward, that's, we had to have a really good impeller to force that fuel up into the space shuttle main engine. And so he worked with the uh, engineers at NASA. And this is one of the things they're holding is the small impeller, which is a miniaturized version of the same type of engineering for the impeller and the space shuttle main engine. So all these patients with LVADs and BIVADs in right now probably have no idea that some of the technology that is keeping them alive as a bridge to transplant uh, comes from 
the space shuttle main engine. And that, you know, other inventions, this is the Canada arm, uh, which is a, a huge arm that we use on the International Space Station that allows an astronaut to be moved from site to site on the International Space Station during a spacewalk. Now you can imagine this has to have very precise movements. Uh, you don't want the astronaut being flung around on the end of the arm. And this vehicle is moving at 17,500 miles an hour. So there's not a lot of margin for error when you're moving from worksite to worksite on a vehicle moving that fast. And an astronaut standing on a stanchion on the very end of that arm. Uh, so the computer software is very sophisticated in how it moves that arm and knows exactly where that arm is in space. And that same software is used for neuroarm to do neurosurgery. And that same precision, that same type software that was developed of uh, much of the same code is used in neuroarm. So the innovations from spaceflight, again, coming down to the ground. Another one, robot, and this is Robonaut number two, or, or what we call, uh, I think, Robonaut two, uh, as partnership with GM and NASA. We, we had this robot uh, and we devised it with the same hands and the same fidelity of hands as the astronaut so that they could use the same tools. So we wouldn't have to use two different sets of tools with the robot or the astronaut. But our work on these uh, hand joints and the fidelity and the haptics, especially the haptics for this hand for this robot, uh, aided in improving prosthetics and the haptics and prosthetics. So again, innovations in spaceflight in one area, uh, carrying over into healthcare, and, and doubtful that many people now with advanced prosthetics uh, that have haptics allowing them to do something like turn a bolt or a screw know that a lot of that may have come from the space program. But the exploration for the moon and Mars is gonna take on even higher innovations. Uh, we are going to look at 3D printing and not only 3D printing of instruments or hardware, uh, but 3D printing of things like medications. And this is an example here where, you know, we might be able to 3D print the actual medication or pill that an astronaut needs rather than taking all of those uh, different polypharmacies with us on a journey uh, to Mars where they might degrade due to radiation or, or, or just time and distance. Uh, but being, being able to just in time produce those with a 3D printer is something that we're looking at now. And we're trying to push all the boundaries when it comes to what would we take uh, to the moon and Mars and how would we use technologies? How would we use that technology to accomplish our mission? And we're even looking at 3D printing of tissues. And this is what the Wake Forest Institute's regenerative medicine uh, did a 3D printing of beating cardiac cells, literally 3D printing beating cardiac cells. Now, the only thing that would be more impressive than that is doing it in space. And this is Dr. Kate Rubens, who's currently on the ISS right now, but this was on her previous flight and Kate was sequencing DNA and growing cardiac cells on orbit. And so a lot of these different innovations carry about from spaceflight to the ground. And one of the things that we also do, and most of you have seen the Apollo 13 uh, movie where when we had a, an emergency and the team got together and they said, we need to make the CO2 scrubber and all we have are the things in this box and the, and the man pulls, pours out the contents of the box on a table. Those things actually happen more often than you might uh, think, but we use 
a concept that we call the team four concept. And we call it team four because it's, you, you might have three different flight control teams or three different shifts. And this is the fourth team that is set about to work on a particular issue that has come up. Um, and the one thing that I've been really impressed with is that the team is very inclusive and not exclusive to only the engineers, but inclusive. Folks from almost every walk of life in the business of spaceflight are invited to these meetings. And that's because the solution very often in a problem may come from outside your expected area. And these are two examples. On the left side, uh, this is Danny Olivas uh, fixing what's called a thermal blanket on the space shuttle. And he's doing a two layer closure literally with suture and surgical staples to that blanket uh, and using the, the uh, techniques that he learned uh, on suturing uh, to close that thermal blanket. So the answer came from the medical community. Uh, and again, on the right side, uh, there was a camera that, that had uh, a malady that required us to find something that would allow that camera to stick on the side of the helmet uh, to fix it uh, but would endure all of those different temperatures from light and dark, 100 different degree uh, variation between light and dark, uh, potentially on that spacewalk. And the answer came from dental cow, the dental cement that we think about or use in the emergency department, uh, which can withstand hot fluids and cold fluids. And so the inclusion of, of the medical folks in, in these two problems allowed us to think of solutions that we might bring uh, on the particular solutions that we actually had on orbit uh, and the devices that we had on orbit. So inclusion is a very important concept that we have in innovation as well. And this, this one slide I, I wanted to bring up because this is an example of falling forward. When you innovate, you have to take risk and you have to be um, not too worried about failure. There has to be an acceptance that you might fail, but you have to lean forward. And so this is the Hubble dark field. This was taken in 1995 and uh, the, uh, the private investigator or, or the, you know, the uh, investigator for the uh, research was called Robert Williams. And Robert Williams was the director of the Hubble Institute. And you know, there is a piece of sky that when you look up is totally dark. If you and I stand outside in the backyard right now and we look at this one little spot, it is totally dark. It looks like there's nothing there. But to give you an idea how small this spot is, if you stood out in your backyard and you held out a, a pen at arm's length, the head of that pen is what we're talking about, a small, tiny, dark spot in the sky. And Robert Williams, you know, it looked like there was nothing there, but Robert Williams wanted to focus Hubble on that spot. And he wanted to focus it there uh, for 10 days. Now you can imagine the telescope time um, and, and all the assets required to look at something, all the uh, investigators who were behind him who wanted to get uh, telescope time, there was a big uproar. Uh, they, there are folks from the Ivy League and elsewhere that were just unhappy with the fact that we are going to aim this telescope at a dark, empty spot for 10 days. Uh, but Robert Williams was convinced that the light that would penetrate in that spot uh, would be coming from farther in the galaxy and the universe. And after 10 days, 
This is the picture that we have. Uh, and these are not planets, these are galaxies. To give you an idea, there are probably 10,000 objects uh, in this picture. And the majority of them are galaxies, not solar systems, not planets, not suns, galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, and so if you think about it, there's estimated to be 10, tens of billions of solar systems like ours just in our Milky Way galaxy. And in that tiny pinhead spot that the telescope looked at, uh, there are at least 10,000 galaxies. And so that changed our entire understanding of the universe with one picture. Uh, but it took that kind of innovation and some bravery to step out and to innovate and not fear failure. And that was extremely important. And it ended up being one of the greatest finds that we have had in the 20th century for astronomy. And you know, with NASA, we have usually, we have a, a goal that we aim at and it's unifying for the entire team. We have NASA centers across the country uh, multiple different centers. And you can imagine the culture at, at NASA Ames in California is different than the culture at NASA Johnson Space Center in Texas, which might be different than NASA Glenn in Cleveland. But we have a unifying mission and, and the mission and the values or the, of the organization bring the team together. And, and this is our next goal. This is to get back sustainably to the moon by 2024 and to use the moon as a test bed uh, for getting to Mars, uh, because it's going to be harder to do that Mars mission. You're not just around the corner. It's not a four-day journey like the moon is. Uh, it's pretty unforgiving if you forget something or if something goes wrong. Uh, but that kind of innovation is what's going to carry forward uh, our exploration of the universe and our understanding of our place in that universe. And so with that, Eric, I'll, I'll end there, but I want to tell you, there's a lot of lessons in that in our journey over the last 60 years in spaceflight that I think carry over into healthcare and especially into innovation and using teams in innovation and focusing those teams. And it's the unexpected journeys, I think, that are also worthwhile. And so with that, I'll close and see if we can uh, have our fireside chat. Wow, this has been uh, quite a program. Uh, uh, just uh, thinking about the the amount of ground we've covered today around systemness and well-being. Uh, the previous panel uh, with Colonel Wheelock and our very own Dr. Voos, uh, just just uh, in awe, uh, Dr. Polk, how you've been able to kind of weave this uh, narrative together: the concepts of innovation, systemness, even commercialization. Uh, inclusion uh, from diverse uh, experts and uh, team members, and uh, even the uh, uh, importance of being able to to fail and take risk. Wonder uh, if perhaps uh, you might reflect uh, on your experience. You've had a, a an unbelievable uh, career as an emergency physician, as a dean of a medical school, as the uh, assistant secretary for Homeland Security, and and obviously numerous roles at at NASA. Um, Perhaps words of wisdom as we think about our own journey towards systemness as a large health system uh, that's continuing to grow, how we bring all of the components of our system, all of our expertise to bear. Uh, lessons learned, uh, words of uh, advice? Well, uh, certainly, I, I imagine it's daunting in the beginning. You've probably got multiple different 
hospitals in the university system right now that, that wonder how, how are they all going to play together in the same sandbox? They might have uh, different cultures. Uh, they might have some different programs or policies that they have. Think their community makes them somewhat unique, but uh, it's, you know, we have the same thing at NASA with all of our different NASA centers, but it's amazing how unifying that mission is so that when you have a mission that aligns with your core values. And I think the mission at University Hospital, obviously, uh, with its healthcare and the patient first uh, is a unifying mission as well. And so getting the folks around that mission and figuring out how to innovate uh, to solve particular issues or problems or to move things forward for healthcare, um, I think those are, are an embodiment that, uh, that your culture will, will grab onto. But also, the one thing that we found at NASA is you got to take care of your folks. And uh, if you take care of your people, uh, that, that helps to uh, get the mission done. And that's, that goes into the wellness aspect that you were talking about earlier. And, uh, you know, Eric, when, when this uh, pandemic started, uh, our administrator, Jim Bridenstine, uh, you know, addressed the entire uh, NASA employee base and said, you know, we've got to take care of our employees. The employees come first because if we don't take care of our people, there is no mission. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that type of mentality, I think, is important that folks really understand that you care about them uh, as a person and uh, in return, I think, then they care about the mission of the organization and the, and the two things work together. Yeah, that, that certainly resonates, I think, our own experience over the past nine months in the pandemic uh, through our uh, hospital incident command exercise uh, saw that unification and mission the ability to accomplish important and difficult things uh, because of our scale, not in spite of it, uh, driving greater coordination, clarity of purpose, alignment of uh, all that diverse expertise and capability around uh, a single patient or a, a single focus. Um, we're on a, a journey to become the most trusted healthcare partner for those we serve and the tripartite mission around to heal, to teach and to discover is been part of our fabric for 160 years. And I'm struck by your, your comments, uh, your presentation, really the whole day in terms of how uh, we think about our next chapter. One of the, the items that came out of our COVID experience was the value of having uh, real-time centralized coordination, a command center or a mission control. Uh, perhaps some thoughts about uh, uh, parallels, um, similarities, and uh, what types of um, uh, things that can enable from your experience at NASA uh, coordinating uh, all sorts of diverse missions. Yeah, you know, most people assume that the uh, the mission control has a very authoritarian, top-down type of, uh, um, you know, leadership style that we see in Apollo 13, where the, 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 the flight director is, you know, calling out orders and asking folks. But if, but if you look deep on things like Apollo 13 in that movie, you see that every single person is empowered uh, at their console and, and they're empowered to make decisions. They're empowered to make a suggestion to the flight director as to what they should do. Uh, they've simulated those things over and over again. And uh, that, that's what most people probably don't understand is that during a space mission, what you see, we make it look really easy. You know, uh, 
wheels, Doug Wheelock out there doing a, a spacewalk and, and it makes it look really easy. Uh, what the public doesn't see is that they've practiced that spacewalk underwater in the neutral buoyancy lab uh, probably 10 or 12 times. And we have done simulations where we have these people that we call sim soup, uh, the sim supervisors who are uh, evil's not the right word, but these, they put these simulations together that are tough and they throw things at you left, right, and center so that when the actual mission comes around, the mission's easy compared to what you've just been through with all these simulations. And I think that's, uh, that's one thing that, that works well in that mission control type atmosphere. Uh, but the other thing, and you and I have talked about it before that, uh, you know, back in like 1967, I think Life Magazine was, was doing an, an interview. Uh, the guy was going to go interview somebody in mission control and he saw someone with a NASA uh, logo on, on his uh, polo and said, you know, what do you do here? He saw this guy in the lobby and he says, oh, I, I helped put people on the moon. And you know, he got up into talking to her. he sees that same guy and the guy's emptying the waste baskets and he's thinking ah why does the janitor think he's putting people on the moon and the flight director corrected him and this is the part that i think is that nasa persona that has persisted throughout our 60 years and the flight director corrected him and said he does help put people on the moon because if he doesn't do his job, then we can't do our job in mission control. And if we can't do our job, the astronauts can't do their job. And so viewing every single person in, the, in that organization as imperative and important towards the mission, and, and not only verbalizing that, but believing it and making people feel like they're part of that mission um, is I think part of the secret sauce, if you will, for NASA. Uh, and it's helped us uh, achieve great things over our 60 years. This last week, we just, you know, we had an asteroid, uh, the asteroid Bennu that is flying through space and we took a spacecraft and we parallel parked alongside of it while it's traveling at, traveling at an unbelievable speed and reached out and scooped up a little bit of it and we just put it in and closed up the lid. I can't even parallel park at Walmart, Eric, and, and and these folks, you know, can you imagine the math the, the, and the calculus needed to figure out how to pull alongside an asteroid? Uh, phenomenal people, but it takes a lot of phenomenal people to make that organization work. Um, and I think that's that's really paramount. The uh, um the work that you do uh, perhaps embodies more than any the, the notion of uh, virtual care or remote monitoring, remote care. And, and certainly we're embracing that on our value journey, really thinking about how to, how to take care of patients in ways that we haven't historically in their home, uh, via telemedicine, via new technologies. Um, as you think about um, the principles of innovation, particularly around care delivery, human-centered design, uh, maybe some thoughts about um, uh, how we might uh, take inspiration from from NASA and the NASA family uh, relative to our own uh, uh, clinical innovation. Well, that that may be the one silver lining for this pandemic is you know we've we've never really fully embraced a, a telepresence in, in a lot of medicine in different areas, and uh, we've been forced to in this pandemic in many different ways. Uh, but, you know, 
right now on the International Space Station, uh, if an astronaut, uh, and very often when they do their exams, we have ocular coherence tomography or OCT on orbit. Uh, we'll look at the back of the eye of the astronaut. Uh, they will send that uh, video and that picture uh, down to mission control. They can send it and beam it over to me. Uh, they can beam it to the flight surgeon on their iPad. We can talk to somebody at you know, two different hospital systems uh, and the ophthalmologist to get their opinion on the back of that eye. I can literally get uh, an electronic medical record from a vehicle moving at 17,500 miles above the earth. So I have very little empathy for people who can't get their clinic to talk to the <laughs> hospital across the street. Uh, but I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, where if there is a silver lining on this pandemic, it will be that our, our fear of the electronic age and telemedicine and some of the other aspects of virtual care, we've gotten a little bit better out of necessity. And, uh, you know, necessity is the, is, you know, the, the opportunity uh, that, re, you know, that comes about because of these things. And that's, uh, you know, that's something that I think will, that, we'll find after the end of this pandemic is that some of the things that became necessary uh, you know, developed opportunities for us to develop and grow in that area. Well, maybe, uh, you know, just to reflect back, uh, you've, you've spent a lot of time in Northeast Ohio, flying around Northeast Ohio, driving across the state. Uh, you logged a lot of hours here at UH, uh, certainly at, at uh, UH Richmond Heights, as it's known now. Um, maybe a, a couple of uh, fond memories, uh, places uh, JD liked to visit uh, when you uh, were in town or when you come back to town, uh, just to uh, connect, uh, connect you back here, albeit virtually. Well, you know, my wife is from Chagrin Falls, so uh, we always have to uh, stop and see if the popcorn shop there is still in place in Chagrin Falls. But I, I love the Metro Parks. Uh, I've always been a big fan of the Metro Parks there. And uh, that was a nice part about being the chief of life flight was flying over the Metro Parks and seeing <laughs> different areas, and, and especially in the fall with the, you know, the leaves changing things. But you, know, you, you touched about the, the, uh, the teaching and, and how that's a, a core value and a that uh, the university hospitals have. And, and you know, you and I, I, I'm feeling old with our 20 year <laughs> history, but uh, I, I know you know one particular case uh, in particular at very late at night where, uh, yeah, we're on the scene of an accident. Uh, we're at the, uh, on, a, uh, on a life flight scene and you and I are talking about a case and I'm, you know, it's, it's important to really incorporate teaching in almost everything that we do. Um, and it's, you never know what becomes of that. You know, does that, uh, does that encourage somebody to uh, then go into medicine? Does that encourage them to go further? Or does it you know, increase their interest? And uh, that's one of the things I love about going back to Northeast Ohio too, is it's a, it's a mecca of of education and medical education, and uh, I enjoy it. Now, the gray skies in January, maybe not so much, but uh, <laughs> the rest of Northeast Ohio, I enjoyed greatly. Well, uh, I know uh, you and I uh, have, have crossed paths at different points over our careers, and uh, we have uh, some shared mentors, uh, some of which even, uh, you know, harken back to the legacy uh, in the UH system. I think of Dr. Paul Martin uh, at, uh, at UH Richmond. I, I think about uh, a number of, of touch points. 
as uh, as you think about um, you know what's ahead in uh, in in your work uh, with NASA, the missions ahead. Um, any thoughts you can leave us with, uh, perhaps to uh, bait us uh, on what's to come? You know, I I, I love working the missions, and and you know I don't get to do as much fun stuff as the other flight surgeons. Now they're still flying on the back of the T thirty eight and. Uh, you know, doing all the fun diving in the neutral buoyancy lab and hanging out with Wheelock and doing all that stuff. And I'm, I'm now usually in a suit and tie and, and, you know, making tough calls and decisions and things. And, but one, one of the most fun things for me is to, uh, as we teach and we you know, develop this next generation to see them come along. And, you know, I'm probably not going to be in this chair when we, you know, touch down on Mars and we are, we have somebody on Mars, but I will have taught and or built the part of the legacy of that education for the people that are going to do that. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's part of what we need to understand too, is that it's not just what we do, it's what we teach the next generation to do and that, that mentorship and that education is really important. And obviously important to me as a former Dean, but uh uh, you know, also in just about every position I've been in, uh, it's been an important value for me to do. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing the first woman on, on the moon. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the first person, uh, man or woman, on Mars. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an exciting thing to, you know, that for me, it, it, because we're working on all of those missions, it's very tangible. Most people think of it like fantasy and, and we're working out the logistics for exactly how that will occur. You know, how much CO2 and how much O2 and et cetera. It's, it's tangible. It's, it's reachable and it's, uh, it's going to be amazing to see. So, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to when I'm like, you know, in the nursing home somewhere and, and start shouting at the TV screen about how, yeah, I put the help put those people on Mars, uh, but it's you know it's going to be coming for too long. Maybe uh, just a final question um, would would welcome your thoughts. We have a lot of people watching uh, uh, today who uh, are aspiring leaders in their own uh, in their own uh, field, and um, as as perhaps uh, we we conclude, um, some thoughts about uh, leading oneself, leading leading others, leading organizations uh, within, within a system, uh, any parting, parting thoughts on leadership? Um, only in that it is a process. Uh, you know, the, the folks that write books about leadership, uh, I'll never write a book on it because I don't feel like I'm ever done because I always have to uh, and keep improving and keep learning things. Every day I'm learning something. Uh, it's it's a process, and it and much like we talked about falling forward, uh, you got to be really able to take the risk and and wear the mantle of leadership. And it is risky, uh, and and there are times that uh, you know people can be difficult things to manage or lead on occasion. But uh, most people, if they see that you are uh, honest and true, and you've got a vision, uh, they're they're willing to follow you. And uh, it's, it's a constant process for me. My, my wife would say it's an expensive process because I keep <laughs> adding a degree or something. In fact, I won't tell you which one, but I'm, I'm you know, back in school right now working on something. And it's, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm uh, ever completed. It's a work in evolution. But let me turn that around and ask you, what, 
what in your career, I mean, you've, you've also had a pretty impressive career going, uh, you know, from emergency medicine and helicopters as well to, uh, you know, commercial industry and, uh, and you know, the whole works. Tell me from your leadership journey, what would you say is, uh, is one of the leadership lessons that you've learned? Well, I think you, you have to, like, like you said, uh, uh, in, endure uh, in, in the learning. It's uh, uh, asymptotic in that way that there's always room to get better. Uh, every day is a new day. Um, but uh, leading with integrity, uh, you know, working your tail off uh, and trying, to, uh, trying to, to do better each day, um, investing in other people, trying to teach uh, is, a, is a big component of, uh, of my philosophy. So, um, I think the, uh, the, the ability to try to achieve balance uh, in that, particularly uh, when, when I, uh, I hear you're uh, pursuing, uh, you know, uh, another, uh, another graduate degree, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you think about finding balance? Uh, how, how do you sort of solve for uh, personal work, family, uh, professional fulfillment? You know, what's, what's the, right, uh, the right way to, to, to balance those? You know, I, balance is an interesting topic because a lot of folks think that it's like a teeter-totter, like you have to keep it perfectly balanced all the time. And I view it more episodic, that there are times when I have to give everything to the work mission. You know, we've got to, you know, put astronauts in space, we got a launch coming, I'm, I'm head down, I'm, I'm following that work mission. There are other times where I put all of my effort into the, you know, my grandson has a one year, uh, his first birthday. And, you know, I was, you know, not going to miss that. And, uh, you know, so, you know, being present in the moments, you know, a lot of folks think you have to choose. Well, you can't do one or both. Well, you can't do one or both simultaneously and keep that teeter totter constantly balanced. But, being passionate about what you do in life, whether it's your, your work, your family, um, there's, it, I don't think there's a choice where you have to be passionate about one and not the other. Um, and I think that's uh, the biggest uh, lesson is that, um, you know, balance may not be the, the absolute best word. It might be, uh, I don't know what the best word would be, but, um, you know, if your family believes you're there in the moment and you give them their, your undivided attention during that time, but then during the mission, uh, you're giving them your undivided attention. Um, and I did the same thing, you know, in the emergency department, you know, when I, when I was there taking care of a patient, uh, you know, I'm not looking at my stocks or, you know, texting on the phone <laughs> to family or anything else. I'm in the moment with that patient. Um, and, uh, but when I'm with my family, I'm, in the moment with my family and uh, but also taking care of yourself. I, I had a, a mentor at uh, University of Southern California when I went to uh, another graduate degree uh, who said that you got to think of yourself as the CEO because we're all CEOs but we're CEOs of you incorporated and you got to take care of the physical plant of you incorporated you got to take care of the financial plant of you incorporated the personal plant of you incorporated uh, and I've, I kind of took that to heart. You got to, you know, pay attention to your health, pay attention to your fitness, pay attention to your family. Um, and I think really 
important in this pandemic, uh, you know, to uh, maintain some type of wellness. People can get worn down by, oh my gosh, sometimes you got to step away from social media and the news and other things just for your sanity. But uh, um, I think it's important to have, I, I think rather than balance, I would probably say a holistic mindset. Um, and uh, I, so I, I, you know, you could argue I may or may not have great balance at any one time, but uh, I'll definitely give them my all when I'm in that moment. Well, uh, I like it. Uh, word, words to live by. Um, you know, JD, thank you so much for, for spending time uh, as, as a friend uh, on behalf of the system. We're, we're uh, so grateful that uh, you've left us inspired and provoked uh, to continue innovating and uh, pursuing our journey toward systemness and uh, well-being. Eric, it's a great pleasure. Always good to see you again and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person and, uh, and the family. And, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing pictures of uh, Beck and uh, Ava. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, it an amazing how they change your life and, and, and things that uh, uh, become important to you. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. And it's thanks for the invite. I, I always enjoy talking about space, obviously, uh, but also any time where I can intersect space and medicine and in and, and the company of good friends, that's time well spent. We appreciate it. Stay safe. You as well. Thanks for listening. That concludes our series on New Frontiers. But as you can see, New Frontiers really opened up a rich set of avenues to explore when it comes to innovation. So we intend to stay close, uh, especially with our with our friends at NASA. To, to ah, I'm going to do this one again. No worries. We'll we'll start from the uh, beginning of the closing. So we're live in three, two, one. Thanks for listening. That concludes our series on New Frontiers. But as you can see, New Frontiers opens up a rich set of avenues to explore when it comes to innovation. So we intend to stay close with our NASA friends and intend to bring them into future Health Voyagers podcast series. Speaking of which, uh, please keep an eye on our website, our LinkedIn page, our Twitter account at UH underscore ventures as we in intend to unveil our next Health Voyager series topic and dates. Thank you again to our partners at NASA Glenn Research Center. Thanks and talk to you all soon.